Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Okay. And that's, I've started already. Oh. In that spirit. Okay. You weren't ready for that. I know you weren't ready, but I've started for that. The spirit of efficiency. <laughs> and go. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the auctioneer episode? This is it. This is it. This is it. Trailer, trailer, go. Trailer, trailer, Instagram. Andy did great. Andy did terrible. Go, go, go. (laughs) Can I tell you the worst? My refrigerator, which I love. You you remember the saga of my refrigerator. I got a new refrigerator. It's not new anymore now. It's old. But you know what what I've noticed? When you put in your cup underneath it. I noticed this tonight because I was in a hurry because I was running late to come talk to you. And when I put my little my my soda stream bottle under the nipple, yes, I shouldn't have used that word because the <laughs> next word that I'm going to use is stream. <laughs> so you could project how that would be a mistake. What I'm going to say is the stream is very slow, and it's annoying when you're in a hurry and you have to fill it. <laughs> Are you even here? <laughs> Sounds like you. a conversation I used to have with my wife <laughs> after our children reached born. This dream is so slow. <laughs> so this was just a, a cavalcade of uh, of incorrect words to actually have an intelligent conversation about the yes. stream that comes from the nipple of my refrigerator. I don't think my refrigerator has nipples. <laughs> doesn't have nipples it probably has one you get water out of it it's a it's got the mono nipple i call it a spigot Uni-nipple. I... <laughs> you know what it really it's the refrigerethra <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah. yeah this is so cinematic it's cinematic anatomy <laughs> that's what we're doing right now friends holy cow can you beat that? Any of the, I, any I, of my stories? Can nothing. you beat it? I have nothing. Andy, we should tell the people where we're from. <laughs> where, where are we from? <laughs> hey, everybody! It's the next reel. Thanks so much for listening in and uh, joining us for uh, Gross Anatomy. And appliance repair. Uh, we appreciate you uh, hanging out with us, listening to our um, movie spoilage. My name is Pete Wright. That there's Andy Nelson. Hello. And uh, tonight we're gonna we're gonna tackle the uh, it's uh, often referred to as the white whale of the uh, movie critique circles. <laughs> I don't know that that's true, uh, but we are going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, this evening. I'm very excited about this. But first, 
you need to get to know us a little better. So you head over to thenextreel.com and you uh, you know you check out the past our past shows, past episodes. You can check out our monthly film board episodes where we gather the gang of thugs to talk about a new release film or one of the classic films that Andy and I have talked about over the years. Uh, you can read the blog stylings of the Once and Future King, Steve Sarmento. Uh, and, uh, and and join us in the conversation. Head over to Facebook.com slash The Next Reel or Twitter.com slash The Next Reel or Google Plus plus Next Reel something. Well, search for us on Google Plus. We're there, too. Uh, and uh, join the conversation. And you know what's even better when you leave us a nice comment on iTunes? iTunes is still the very best way for people to discover the show, and your comments and kind stars help to raise awareness of the stuff that we do. So if you like the show, you appreciate what we do, uh, your comments make it better. And we need to talk about some of that, right? That's right, we do. We should do that. Because we've got our Listener's Choice episode coming up uh, in a couple months, and we're going to be doing our drawing here uh, in, uh, I think, when when did we say? Early November? Early November. Oh, goodness. That's coming right up. So that's that's when the episode airs. Sorry, we're going to be we're doing the drawing in mid October. So got... I'm totally unprepared for this. <laughs> so people are leaving comments on, like Pete said, Facebook, iTunes, Twitter, and we already have a, a couple comments out there. One from uh, Brenda Tackett, who uh, wonders if we have done the original Bad Seed, and uh, that's a, which that's a that's a good one. I've never seen it. What? So I I know I never oh, have seen it. Man. So, the, which makes it piques my curiosity. So maybe we'll be talking about that one. Uh-huh. And then over on Twitter, Tony Danger uh, said, uh, "Think you guys can do a Nightmare Before Christmas episode for either Halloween or Christmas?" Well, there we've got a couple. Uh, no, I, a couple yeah, I like that. A couple entries there in the uh, listener's choice episode. So, so get out there and, uh, and leave us some comments and we will, uh, we will consider uh, something that you uh, pull out of your hat for us to talk about. That would be great. That is, uh, we deeply appreciate those comments. And you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. It's motivating when people say nice things. Sure. makes me uh, want to come and talk to you uh, every week. I have no other reason to talk to you. I was <laughs> when you burned me by the pre-joke. <laughs> I set you up. I recognize I set you up with that one. Yes, you gave that one to me. Well, let's You're see if a giver. I, You're let, a giver, Pete. Let's see if I can dig up something to make fun of you on. How did uh, the Pony Prize go this week? Well, you'd be making fun of our buddy uh, Stephen Smart, who who took over again this week. Oh, then I t- I pre-take it back. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a it was a well. I mean, it was a good week for him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he picked uh, the movie Tamara Drew, or I don't know if it's Tamara Drew or Tamara Drew, depending on your particular pronunciation of the name. I haven't seen the film, so I don't know how they pronounced it in the film. But uh, it was a Stephen Freer's film from 2010 that apparently nobody has seen. <laughs> well, uh, one person finally on uh, just yesterday, day six, Kendra Midmod 83 finally figured out what movie it was from. And uh, so, yeah, Stephen almost had everybody uh, outsmarted this week. But uh, alas, Kendra Midmod 83 came through and now is entered to win the Pony Prize. Man, encyclopedic. (laughs) Man. Clearly, it was from people's comments. It was not a movie that many people had heard of. <laughs> I hadn't even heard of it, so it's. Uh, and I, I enjoy Stephen Frears, but clearly it was uh, one of his minor works. I guess deep, deep cuts. 
Uh, well, that is that is fantastic, and I uh, am excited about this. Uh, this uh, all the contests, the end of the year contests. I'm very excited about these things. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do trailers. Andy, uh, I'm going to go first. Oh, you go first. Do, do you want to know why? Because you didn't say anything fast enough. I felt like there was a <laughs> pregnant pause, and I uh, so I jumped in. Here we you, go. I'll give you that. Where where do you stand on uh, David Cronenberg? I like him sometimes. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> well, that was fairly noncommittal. I'm doing Maps <laughs> to the Stars. Uh, the Maps to the Stars is uh, a new David Cronenberg film written by Bruce Wagner, stars Julian Moore, Robert Pattinson, uh, Sarah Gadon, um, it's uh, and John Cusack and, oh, Mia, and, and Wasikowska. Mia Wasikowska and mm. Carrie Fisher. All of these people are in this are in this movie. It's very very exciting, Uh, and it looks. There are a number of trailers, and the the trailer that I, uh, the first trailer I saw was the thriller trailer, like thriller, scary music, everything super scary. And then I sent you a link of another trailer that I found on YouTube that was not as scary at the beginning. It felt very much like the Labor Day conundrum. Until mm-hmm. it gets to the end of the trailer that I showed you, and they're like tying each other up and beating each other in the living room. <laughs> uh, so it it looks like quite a thriller. It's a it's um, I I'm not entirely sure uh, how to how to describe it. Uh, IMDb says it's a tour into the heart of a Hollywood family chasing celebrity and uh, and one another and the relentless ghosts of their past. So uh, that describes every movie. <laughs> well, it looked interesting. And the thing that piqued my curiosity the most was the fact that at the very end it said, uh, now in post-production. <laughs> Is that weird? <laughs> like, oh, you don't see that too often yeah, at the end like, of them. We're, okay. we're really moving up. We're really moving up <laughs> <laughs> now in post-production. Uh, it it is it. due to come out. It, it, it was. It was to have already come out. Post it is post release in France apparently twenty first of May twenty fourteen I don't know if that how true that is, uh, but apparently in Europe it's already maybe it's back in post production, <laughs> post release production. They've gone back to do some more work on yeah. that. But I, I thought it looked very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I was excited about it. And then I, I looked at uh, you know Bruce Wagner's um, credits and. Um, you know, most recently he's, he's uh, written a number of episodes of uh, State of the Union. I think that's he's that's um, he's on the writing team there. Uh, we, you know, Women in Film, I'm Losing You, White Dwarf, White Palms. Uh, but his his big credit for me is uh, my favorite of the catalog of Freddy Krueger films, A Nightmare on Elm Street Three, with the Dream Warriors. <laughs> If you remember that, oh, I do. Yeah, I definitely do. That was that was a big one. Oh, Heather, yeah. Heather Langenkamp mm-hmm. goes dreaming. Makeup artist. Mm. Isn't, she, isn't she do now, special I, I effects? Think she does now. Yeah. Yeah. Robert England. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was something. Yeah. All right. So that's it. What do you think? Good. I, you know, I, I'm always curious to see David Cronenberg's stuff. I, I don't always pursue them. Um, I, I don't even remember the last one I saw. I, I feel like it's been a while. But I do enjoy some of his 
uh, way of thinking and putting stories together. And uh, he definitely has an interesting way of telling uh, telling a story. I still think one of my favorites is his uh, reworking of The Fly. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a standout piece. But, you know, he also has a, a history of violence. Mm, yeah. um, you know, Cosmopolis recently with uh, Pattinson again, which you know I thought was an interesting take on the the theme, and and so he's got he's got a number of films in there that I I find uh, I, I keep coming back to, um, it, but then the rest of them are like you know I don't know Naked Lunch. Yeah, I, I, so. that's that one. You know, I enjoy that one for its uh, depiction of that world. I think he created a very interesting. Experience with that film. All right, now we're gonna get. Now we're now we're gonna throw down. Now, now we're gonna get into it. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. What is? What's your trailer? Mine is Kelly and Cal, uh, a uh, a film that uh, was it uh, did pretty well for itself back at uh, at South by Southwest. It got a Game Changer Award, the winner of the South by Southwest Film Festival Game Changer Award, which I guess you know it's uh, something that means it's it's a game changer for people involved in this. Somebody's game has been changed. That's right. This is a, a kind of a a Juliet Lewis film that people are saying you know this is the Juliet Lewis that. Uh, should have been after she was uh, getting all the accolades as the young breakout star back in her uh, Cape Fear days and everything. Uh, this is kind of that Juliet Lewis that we wanted to see her become. And she looks great in this film. She's playing a suburban mom who, uh, you know, she ends up kind of accidentally befriending this 17-year-old wheelchair-bound uh, boy next door. And they kind of create this, uh, this, you know, funky friendship. And, you know, she reveals that she used to kind of have this, uh, you know, punk rocker uh, childhood where she uh, was in a, a band and all that stuff. And, and it's just a, you know, it's a way for her to kind of break out of this suburban mold that she's been trapped in and also kind of, you know, help him grow and all that sort of story. It sounds so cheesy when you say it like that, but, you know, it looks good from watching the trailer. I, I I think yeah, it looks I, great, and I'm so excited that it's getting some positive uh, buzz because you know Jen McGowan and Amy Lowe Starbin, uh, director and writer, uh, are you know really shy on the credits. Like they are they are relative unknowns, and um, it, it, it's just awesome to see you know such good work coming out of such a short list of credits. Yeah, absolutely. They're um, they're fairly new to the business. They've done, I think, uh, Jen McGowan's only done a few little shorts, really, and I mean she's been involved in some some bigger projects, but you know, not. Yeah, there's really not a lot in her uh, in her lineup. So it is great seeing this film. I mean, it looks great. It's got great characters. It looks like it has kind of this this really well-written script with well-rounded characters in it. Um, I'm excited to see where this takes them. Me too. Okay. It's a date. Uh, now, we need to take a quick break because there's someone who needs to see you in room 237. Can you go check that out? Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. What's up, Doc? 
Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now, sometimes, what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. All right, so clearly that, I, well, that was not the official trailer. The yeah, official, it's clearly not. The, this, how long have you known about that? I, who did that? That was... Robobos? Robo, well, that's who posted it. Be, is yeah, that who I don't it know. was? I, I don't know. I don't know who originally did it, but... Um, that was... I've uh, This has been floating around the internet for... Ever. Well over a decade, yeah. 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 That is uh, really great, and uh, I think you know really sums up my experience with the movie uh, of course we are talking about the shining adaptation from stephen king's uh book of the same name it was released may 23rd 1980 director stanley kubrick written by stanley kubrick and diane johnson mm-hmm. it stars pretty much jack nicholson shelley duvall and danny lloyd with the wonderful scatman crothers barry nelson philip stone Joe Turkle. Joe Turkle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty much them. I want him to be my bartender every time uh, I walk in the bar. Uh, <laughs> hello, Lloyd. My dad's name is Lloyd. Did you know that? Oh, wow. So you, you actually probably knew that. And so I, 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 I used to, when I first saw this movie, I used to call him and ask him to make me drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's pretty good. Is he good at it? Yeah, he's well, not really. <laughs> lousy, <laughs> lousy bartender. <laughs> Great dad, lousy bartender. It's probably not a bad thing to, not a bad That's, combination. Yeah, probably worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of The Shining? It's it's been probably uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. This is not one that I put on. Uh, this is not my lazy Sunday uh, movie. Uh, it's so it's not been mine, many years since I've it's seen not it. mine either, but I uh I feel like this may be the, the Kubrick film I've seen more than any of the other films of his. And I'm not sure why that is, but when I'm reaching to, hey, let me put on a Kubrick film, it seems to fall into this one. And uh which I find interesting. Um I, I do like this film um quite a bit. I I feel like there's uh, there's something with Jack Nicholson that's just over the top from the beginning that that always kind of uh, never quite works for me. It never clicks. Yeah. But other than that, I, I do really enjoy the film. You know, there's an interesting commentary about Nicholson's casting in this film, and I, I can't. Was it? I'm not sure who it was. That I, I'm I've already lost the note. This is a horrible reference. Uh, that they were frustrated that Kubrick or the, that uh, Nicholson had been cast because he'd just done Cuckoo's Nest. And that just having him cast in this film gives away the madness angle. That he's well, already conditioned people to see him as 
he's going to he's going to lose it. Well, there had been five years between the two films, so well, I don't yeah, think but it's... I mean that was that was his. I mean he he was that was sort of a legacy. That was that was a comment. Not me. Don't kill the messenger, Andrew. <laughs> Just saying, it was out there. I'm gonna yeah, find it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he had done uh, going south right before this as well, which I yeah, think he directed, true. and I believe he had. Uh, he was, I think, a little crazy in that as well. So, I mean, he clearly already kind of had the the crazy crazy hat on in some of his roles, yeah. Um, which I think had come about a little bit after his earlier 70s films, you know, The King of Marvin Gardens, Last Detail, Chinatown. Uh, he was, I don't recall him being quite as, quite as crazy in those films, but then he definitely starts getting crazy after that. And it really kind of spirals into kind of his mania in the 80s and 90s with Witches of Eastwick, Batman, yeah. uh, well. you know, A Few Good Men. You know, he really kind of takes that, that mantle and uh, runs with it after he, that. He does really channel imbalance. He does. Yes, he does. <laughs> he really does. Uh, this, you know, I'm obviously. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of this film. Uh, I the a spoiler. I'm a fan, uh, <laughs> and, and it it holds up. I think maybe it holds up. And I've read a lot of the the commentary about how you know the, 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 there there are so many people who pull the film apart at such a detailed level to to really sort of dress down the film. Um, I I don't look at it that way, and I I've never looked at it that way. I tend to look at the film on much more of a macro scale, and and um, and and look at sort of the relationship of these. Of, of the family, the dissolution of the family uh, that is represented in this film and, and the dissolution of the family that comes uh, in a, you know, a horror film without excess blood and gore, but really builds intensity in a, in a deliberate and patient manner uh, that I think is extraordinarily effective. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited with my, my last viewing of the film. I watched it as, you know, probably more carefully than I have in, sort of recent recent viewings and and i found it um really effective um i have less trouble with uh with uh jack nicholson uh and his sort of general mania that you don't click with than i do with shelly duvall Hmm. Uh, i do have some trouble with shelly duvall um i i have a i i have a hard time watching (laughs) watching uh watching her in the film um and i'm not quite sure why that is uh it just never feels like it's like that sixth finger trying to go into a five-fingered glove it's just something's not right interesting Uh, but i have zero trouble uh with young danny lloyd uh who i find just i am entranced by this kid yeah, and I mean, he was he was great in this. They did a you know this huge casting trying to find the perfect kid for it. He was a kid out of somewhere in Illinois, I believe, and uh, just ended up kind of doing really well uh, in the auditions. He worked well, um, kind of just capturing the whole Tony aspect with the voice and his finger and everything. And they just kind of really fell for him, and then. Uh, you know, he kind of retired. <laughs> yeah. I think he did. He did one more thing a couple years later. Uh, Will the autobiography of G. Gordon Liddy as uh, young uh, Gordon Liddy, and that was it. And uh, he kind of, you know, just didn't 
continue acting and he just did his own little life and that was it but uh which and kudos to him i mean i i think uh you know knowing uh knowing what he uh, wants out of life rather than acting i guess right now he's a according to imdb he is a teacher of hard sciences in missouri wow yeah all your life all your life you work to to get to that point to play danny torrance and then you throw it all away <laughs> uh so what in, let's let's do a little bit of a summary and i i'm only asking this because i have had a number of conversations uh with people about the shining and they and and when we talk about what is this film about uh i get a really i, I get a pretty wide range uh hmm. of responses from people who love the film they say they love the film and have a very different impression of what the film is about so what is the film about for you well uh, you know that's it's, it's interesting and i think it comes from um people who have read the book and people who haven't read the book i think you may end up finding different impressions of what they're getting out of it kubrick never saw the film as the same thing that Stephen King saw the book. And that was one of the reasons that when the movie came out, Stephen King uh, kind of uh, was not, uh, uh, I won't say he wasn't happy, but he was, he was disappointed with the film. I think it didn't, it didn't take some of the um, ideas out of the book that he had been um, working toward. And it kind of took things that, that, uh, that he wasn't necessarily focusing on. Um, Kubrick always saw this as a story of a family going insane together and you get kind of this madness of all of them kind of breaking down really. And Stephen King always kind of saw it as a haunted hotel story, uh, but it did deal with alcoholism um, because he was uh, dealing with his own alcoholism at the time that he wrote it. Um, and, uh, and then just kind of the family issues and the kind of the father son relationship and all of that. And for me, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've read the book, and I enjoy the book, and I uh, and I read it actually after having watched the film. So I think that puts it all into a different perspective. Like, which do you uh, interact with first, the film or the movie, mm-hmm. uh, or the film or the book? I mean, either one, or the TV movie, which um, I I'd, I'd rather not ever think about again. <laughs> but but the, but the film, I it, to me, it really is about. Um, I, I don't know. I, yes, I can see what Kubrick is saying about kind of a story of a family going insane together. But and, and you know, critics look at this as: are these things really happening, or is it just is it just crazy things in the house or in their minds that um, that we're seeing? Uh, or you know, is it real? Is it in their heads? Exactly what is going on? And I don't know. I've always just kind of looked at it as a haunted hotel film. And uh, that's how I've always interpreted it. Um, I've never kind of looked at it as this is stuff uh, that's all in their heads as they all kind of have uh, a, a breakdown over this over this uh, winter in this isolated hotel. Um, so I, I don't, maybe that's being simplistic of me, but I've always just kind of seen it as a haunted hotel film. Yeah, I you know, I... I guess I have too, and uh, that's why I'm often surprised at at some of the other responses of what the film is about, or people who just really don't 
kind of know what it's about. They just sort of like the the parade and the and the horror. Um, but there is this this sense of you know not just the um, you know the supernatural kind of experience of the hotel, but but of you know what is the role and the connection of Jack Torrance and what is it that his you know his presence represents in the hotel um you know particularly when you look at how the film closes and and how the film closes in the originally intended uh final sequence which uh you know was cut i think what two weeks after the film was officially released uh it was re-edited uh, kubrick changed the ending so which i think in itself is is um, was largely unprecedented um and and i i think uh did did away with some of the, um, you know, some of the the potential supernatural connection to it. I think it it uh, uh, it numbed some of the ending of the film. Well, it certainly would have had a very um, Halloween sort of ending, where right. they go back to to look for the body and he's not there. You know that that whole ending I, I think had become a bit of a horror movie trope yeah. by that point, uh, just to kind of give that last little twist at the end uh in your denouement to kind of uh you know leave audiences walking out of the theater disconcerted that Mm -hmm. the the killer we thought he was dead but he's but he's yeah he's still out there ready for the sequel the shining i don't i you know i don't think it's i just think it's an interesting um take on on what the film really sort of represents to me the film is is again as i said this is a film about about family uh and and i think it's such an interesting story about family because it picks up in the emotional journey of jack torrance who is clearly maybe this is much more the way Nicholson plays the part, but it's clearly the family is already on a road to dissolution, uh, you know, before he even takes the job. I mean, this we start out with this luscious opening credits sequence. This, the the opening credits of the film are this is this flying sequence up through this valley, and and the you know the the little yellow Volkswagen bug is is you know sort of careening up this mountain road but it is really such a small element of the frame right you know and i i think you know this this does a number of things uh you know first of all it it introduces us to to kubrick's use of space on the frame and uh from there on one of the things that you notice about the film or that i notice about the film is just the way he puts humans in at, at a very small scale right Mm-hmm. Because all the the use of physical space, all of the major set pieces, the major rooms are, are uh, you know, they take place uh, in, in a way so that, um, you know, the people are dwarfed by their surroundings and and i really like that because i think one of the one of the um, one of the connections we get to make is just how small sort of we are our problems are that sort of a thing that that this place this mountain this um, you know this uh, um, valley that you're driving in is is in somehow it's going to own you by the end of your experience here um, you are you are nothing to us. And I think that's kind of what the, you know, what the horror message ends up playing out for us and particularly with, with Jack's role. But, um, you know, I really like that. And so that gets back to this kind of emotional connection that we have, that the family is kind of falling apart. It's falling apart in the midst of, uh, such grandeur that, um, you know, the hotel takes no, uh, it, it suffers 
And he pairs that very interestingly with really interesting pieces of music. Um, I mean, he had Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind compose a few little pieces of electronic score that are in there. But for the most part, it's some really, it's like the sort of music that I can't imagine people actually going and sitting down in a concert hall to listen to. But but apparently people do. Um, but uh, he's got some pieces by uh, Georgi Ligeti, by Bella Bartok, uh, by uh, Christoph Penderecki, and um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Hector Berlioz, I think, mm-hmm. are the, uh, the the ones that are in there. And it's um, all of the pieces are just some of the most disturbing kind of pieces of music to listen to. If you pull it out of the film and listen to it, it's just, it, it really creeps you out. And when you have those, those gorgeous open spaces uh, of, of the, the most amazingly smooth helicopter shot flying over the landscape um, with just this tiny human element in there dwarfed by this, this amazing environment with this horrifying music, I, I think Kubrick found a really interesting way to uh, create this world and create this style of telling a horror story that allows for time and doesn't rely on on uh, you know quick cutting or those you know just just all the tropes of horror movies where you've got you know kind of the jump scares you know the right. typical sort of jump scares or you've got those musical stingers that just hit right as the boogeyman comes around the corner or something like that or the hand reaches out of uh, from behind something it just you don't have that and you've just got these vast spaces and it really does i feel end up putting you into a psychological place with these characters as they are breaking down. And so to that extent, I do agree with Kubrick that, you know, you are kind of going and watching this family going insane together and, and you as the audience are really getting into their heads by, by having the, this uh, pacing and having the, the music that he uses and having the, this, the, just the, this, these wide shots that are just vast and uh, and uh, allow these characters to kind of be overwhelmed by their environments and and the maze the maze like nature of so many of these things whether it's the actual maze outside of the hotel or, or just, just the, the architecture ho- itself yeah or the <laughs> hotel itself it, it is like this giant maze when you're following Danny around on his three wheeler. Uh, as he as he cruises around the hallways, it's no different than when you're following him around in the maze. It really is kind of the same thing. And you know, it, it, go ahead, finish your point. I was just going to say, and I just think it was, it was very smart of him to to play with the horror movie tropes and and using the tools that he was presented with to change the horror element to make it a little more psychological and i I think that uh it was a very smart way to tell this particular story yeah i do too and i think one of the things he adds to it right is this not not just sort of putting us in this in in that place in the frame but also doing a a really you know i think a nice job of demonstrating the fragility of kind of the human relationship with nature right the fact that the the family's experience uh or the family's safety um you know really was tied to those three little fuses in the radio uh, transmitter, um, you know, I think further cements this sort of distance and scale uh, that I really liked. But to, on, on another point, speaking back to the maze, this film would not, I think, be what it is without the use of Steadicam. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was the uh what did we say it was the fourth or fifth i think we've talked about it a, a little bit when we talked about marathon man 
Yeah, because Marathon Man was the, I think, what was it? The, it ended second, up being the, I think, the second film, I think, to use. Yeah. I, although I think it ended up being the first release. Because that's right. Because I think he shot um, uh, the Woody Guthrie movie, um, I'm Bound for Glory. That was the first one shot, and yeah. then Marathon Man, and then Rocky. But I think Marathon Man ended up getting released first. Yeah. Um, shot, and that was all 76. Shining was a few years later, and uh, and I know um, he was he had to leave partway through the shooting of this one to go shoot Rocky too. So I mean, it, he definitely was in. I think he says in the first half dozen or so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and this, I think more than Marathon Man, even we have this. Uh, although there's there's some elegant use of uh, of tension and uh, that comes with the smoothness of being able to move the camera in new ways in Marathon Man for sure. But this film um, is. Uh, it felt to me like, and I didn't time it out, but it felt to me like most of the film is on a steady, steady cam in <laughs> some way, shape, or form. The way we we either follow characters, we parallel characters on, on a parallel track in, through um, through these long hotel uh, through hotel corridors, or uh, follow characters uh, through these corridors. In the case of Danny, which I, I think a lot of that was done on a an, in a wheelchair with the Steadicam, uh, and uh, you know, or uh, meet characters when we have characters coming straight toward us and moving backward around them. I think that those sort of three angles are used so frequently in this film that you almost all, uh, almost feel like you're flying for much of it, uh, which to me is a wonderful experience. Well, and it ties into, in a very nice way, of being kind of that that omniscient viewer that we see right at the start of the film over, you know, looking as we're flying over the lakes and the mountains right. and the roads. It's very much the exact same movement that we have. So it's almost like, uh, you know, nothing has really changed as far as how we, the viewer, are kind of looking at the story, whether it's outside or inside. It really is just kind of this, you know, this uh, this floating being is really kind of how we're watching everything unfold. That's right. And it, it really, I mean, I like that you, you connected that to the opening credits, that you really do feel like you're flying into the hotel. Uh, and, and, you know, at its simplest, as a ghost story, um, you feel like one of, the, one of the more dangerous participants. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Uh, what else? Uh, what else do you want to talk about production? It was filmed well, I, in my neighborhood, I should say. It was filmed in, in your neighborhood, was it? Exterior. Timberline Lodge. That's, right up, oh, in right your up current neighborhood. Right, right, right. Up right. And, uh, and our old stomping grounds, Boulder. There's a shot from Boulder. There's a shot from Boulder. And the Stanley Hotel in Boulder, or out, outside of Boulder, in, uh, Estes Park. Estes Park, yeah. yeah. Is where Stephen King uh, was inspired and wrote the book. Uh, right, and, and which they... Which they actually used for the TV movie version in yes. 1997. Um, it, it didn't, about which uh, we will not speak. About right. which we will not speak. <laughs> the uh, yeah, it's uh, sometimes trying to do a more faithful adaptation. I find is not the right way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Stephen. I know you yeah. uh, you actually uh, were really behind that one because you weren't happy with this one. But this one is the better project. I I, I actually never saw it. The TV one. Never saw I, it could have just been the casting. I, I had a real problem with the kid that they cast in mm-hmm. that. I he was just no Danny Lloyd. Yeah. So, the um, 
Um, but yeah, so, and then those highway shots at the beginning were filmed up at uh, Glacier National Park. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual hotel uh, set was all, all built as per Stanley Kubrick and his kind of way of filmmaking. He Once he moved to England, he kind of never left. He never flew. He, he just was afraid of flying. And uh, he really never left England. And so all of the actual snowy exteriors where they're running around, that was all built uh, outside of a little village in England. All of the interiors were on some sound stages out there. The maze was built there. Everything was on stages out there. What's, uh, I, you know, they uh, at one point he wanted to actually grow the maze uh, and was, I think, disabused of of that uh, <laughs> wish. <laughs> well, considering how long the film took to make, he probably could have. Yeah, he probably could have, and the, that, that would have. So they were going to film the, the, you know, film the hedge stuff at the very end. He said, "Well, just we'll plan it now, then we'll go do everything else, and then come back. It'll be ready." <laughs> <laughs> this giant hundred-year-old uh, maze. Right, exactly. That's funny. It's this was a film that took. Uh, it was supposed to be done in 17 weeks. It ended up taking, I think, about 46 weeks to film, um, as per Kubrick. Uh, and I really appreciate this uh, in a director because you ne- you so rarely have directors who who look at uh, making a film this way. He says, "Look, we spend months and months and months." trying to uh, get everything right, trying to figure out the casting, trying to figure out the look, working on the script, working on the uh, finding the right locations, building the sets. We spend months, sometimes years, getting all this stuff done. But then we go into production, and it's like boom, boom, boom. Okay, done. Move on to the next thing. Okay, done. Move on to the next thing. And you don't spend any time on it. If we're going to spend months and years prepping it, then let's take the time and actually make sure we get everything exactly the way we want. And that is something that uh, I mean, he's lucky he was working in a studio system that allowed him the budget overages to do that. I mean, not often are people able to just you know do that with their budgets where they can kind of go from a 17-week to a 46-week schedule. That doesn't usually bode well for the uh, people involved. But mm-hmm. he really worked uh, his actors and just did them over and over and over again. I think the longest take, and I... I, I it was at one point a record. I don't know if it is still a record or not. Um, but the take where he, where Scatman Crothers and Danny Lloyd are sitting down having ice cream, talking about The Shining in the kitchen, uh, that scene, he filmed uh, the Scatman Crothers close-up 148 times to oh. get to get it right. And it finally ended because Scatman just kind of like broke down and I don't know if he was broke down in tears, but he just kind of like finally broke down. Like, I just don't even know what you want anymore. I just can't do this anymore. And Kubrick was kind of feeling bad and so kind of stopped at that point. But um, (laughs) he just he just kept going. And that's um, kind of what Kubrick was looking for. And, And he would film his rehearsals. So. The first, you know, everybody would say, you know, you can't expect like the first, you know, five or ten takes to really work because everyone's still trying to figure their stuff out, figuring out the moves, figuring out what they want. But then to go from those five or ten takes to 148, it's like, wow. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, and the stories of, you know, uh, uh, Shelley Duvall passing out from exhaustion and, you know, I mean, there, he's, he's sort of got this legendary uh, uh, endurance, yeah. let's say, persistence. Uh, uh, for just getting it just right. But 146 takes, really, a bridge too far. 
That's that's a lot of takes. Yeah. But um, yeah. Well, it is Scatman Crothers. You know, you wanna you wanna get it right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, let's see. Who else are you excited about in this film? I, you know, you talked about the the music, which I thought was um, wonderful, and uh, generally the the cinematography uh, was particularly elegant. They, the cinematography, they really spent a lot of time, and this again fits in with Kubrick and his length of time. Yeah. Uh, they spent a lot of time focusing on all of the specific aspects of the lighting for every single scene. Um, and we they should, would, we should say John Alcott did the, uh, cinematography. Yeah, John That's Alcott did the cinematography. Did. Right. And they, um, they did lots and lots of tests. Uh, they would, they would light it and then they would, uh, they would put things on dimmers so they could change them easily. And then they would just kind of adjust the dimmer and, and they would film it. And then they would look at, they would process the film and they would look at it and go, okay, oh, hey, that's the spot that we like right there. So they could know exactly how they're going to light it. So they did a lot of lighting tests on this to make everything right. Whether it's the lighting at the bar when, uh, Jack comes to, to have his drinks with, with, uh, your father or, <laughs> or if it's, or if it's the exteriors and the exteriors, uh, which, uh, you know, they, it wasn't really snowing when they filmed this. So they actually had to make all of that snow with salt. I can't remember how many tons of salt, but it was this insane 900 tons of salt that they used. Uh, they put on the ground outside to make this and the salt just erodes your boots and it just uh, corrodes the equipment. So like they had to keep buying new boots for people because it kept ruining things. And then they were blowing styrofoam everywhere. This was long before the days where productions really had to pay attention to how uh, people you know, how their bodies actually dealt with the stuff that they were, they were breathing in because they were using, they would do the, the smokers, which were, you know, it would just kind of burn this oil that would just smoke everything up to give it that nice smoky look. Well, you know, now we know that that's not something that you should make people breathe. But back then they didn't really attention to that quite so much so everyone was breathing this awful smoke and having styrofoam blowing around walking around and 900 tons of salt and it was just this great big mess and the poor village they said that this poor village that they were filming outside of in england they said it was like a, a you know a an industrial town back in like back east or something kind of a small industrial town that survives on its mining they hate the mine but they love the fact that it brings in money to the town and so that so nobody would complain but they all hated the fact that you know the styrofoam was constantly blowing through the streets and everything <laughs> from the, the set <laughs> yeah right exactly it's like over the hill and all the styrofoam would kind of keep blowing over and everything was getting ruined but there was so much money coming into the town that they weren't going to complain about it so just kind That's of a sad fantastic. thing but yeah so but back to the lighting they um all they had a lot of strong lights outside to blast this and this is a great um, I don't know if we've ever talked about color timing before, but you know, you you have all these bright lights, and they're very orange the way that they would film with these outside lights. And what they would do then is they would process the film. And again, Stanley Kubrick is very meticulous. He had very specific notes for the the color timers and even the processors as far as which lights and what levels to use as they developed the film. 
And then when they timed it, they take this film where it comes out looking kind of orange and they adjust the color temperatures so that it all ends up creating this nice blue look that we now all know as we watch the film, which makes it look like it's a really cold winter. But in fact, it was actually really, really hot. So uh, hot and salty. Hot and salty. And they're all in their sweaters and uh, <laughs> uh, running about looking cold. Yes. Um yeah, it's it's a fascinating uh, and and horrific uh, shoot. Yeah, um, went on forever. Went on forever. Editing was done by uh, the uh, the great Ray Lovejoy. Um, J- you know, generally fine. He's done a lot of stuff. He actually did Batman. I've already mentioned Batman once. We've talked about him because when he did the uh, Aliens uh, show. Mm-hmm. He did, I, I think, a really great job uh, in here with the, um, uh, I mean, he did, I, I was talking about the horror movie tropes earlier and talking about like the jump cuts and everything, kind of those quick cuts that you would get in a horror yeah. film. There are some of those in here, but they're not, they're not ever uh, things that are like real in the environment, things that are happening. It's all like these psychological cuts within Danny's head. Uh, or or Jack's head or whoever's yeah, head it is. Flashback, flash forward things. Right, where you're getting as Danny sees these two creepy girls in the hallway, he gets this flash cut of the two of them dead lying in the hallway with just blood everywhere. But it's it's very quick, and then you pair that with that creepy music, and it really uh, unsettles you. And you know you know you're not seeing the real girls, but you you know again going back to Stanley Kubrick and his idea of this story of a family going insane together, you know you're inside these characters' heads. And I think it, uh, it, it works really well the way that he edited and played around with that. Well, I think so, too. And to your point, I think the one kind of traditional boo moment we get is the, um, the, the jump cut is the, um, you know, it's the death of Cru- uh, Scatman Crothers, right, when he's, he's coming in. We, he, you know, Torrance, Jack Torrance actually jumps out from behind a post. He does. But the thing that I like about that and the thing that I I think I appreciated a lot more this time is that it's not done in the traditional jump cut way. It's exactly what I was going to say. And and that that whole sequence starts in a way that you think is going to build up to a jump cut, right? You think it's going to because he comes up the hill and you hear Scatman Crothers in the lobby and he's he's saying, anybody here? And uh, Jack comes up, he's dragging the axe and he's limping along. And you think, okay, this is, I'm about to to get spooked, right? Um, But they don't rely on the editing to give you the jump, right. they rely on uh, on uh, Jack himself, yeah. who actually jumps and then cuts. Wah, wah. <laughs> with, with the axe. <laughs> Were you waiting to get that one out? Is yes, that what that was? That was the whole thing. And then <laughs> you interrupted as if I, I was like going down the wrong road. I totally was going down the right because I had a joke. It was a jump and a cut joke. And you went on and got all film school on me. <laughs> I've been waiting for that one for like two days since I finished wow. the movie. Andy's going to love my jump and then cut joke with the axe. Does it help if I tell you that I still love it? It does a little bit. <laughs> okay. It does a little bit help, yeah. Uh, what a relief (laughs) you finally got it out i'm hanging (laughs) up yourself a pat on the back yeah (laughs) that's the last one Uh, 
All right. Um, I don't even know where to go from here because I've been waiting to work that one in for so long. <laughs> Just like, yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, back to editing. Uh, it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have to give credit to the production and, and art design of this film because, yeah. uh, really, because they built a giant hotel. And and it goes back to this sense of scale. Every single room in here, I think this is so, you know, this. I know I'm harping on about this, but uh, but it, all the way down to the kitchen and the pantry and the way they run the the camera as they're giving the tour of the, of the pantry, down these, you, you think it's just this little room that's kind of this row of shelves that, that is right by the door uh, because the weight of the tour uh, scene is there and then he turns and he he walks and and we're on the opposite end of this giant pantry and they we we parallel uh the tour as they show this pantry and it's huge it's a high ceiling it's multiple shelves and and it ends up once again building this sense of uh of you know that the humans pale in comparison to where they are and where they are was totally built uh and i think that is uh it was just a, a triumph that it looked as good as it did it looked yeah. as complete and i know that there have been you know and you you maybe i, I think maybe you participated in writing one of these uh, critical essays on how poorly the staging is and set design is done in this film because there are so many errors and windows in the wrong place you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, oh, I know what you're talking about. I, I don't believe that. You didn't write that. that? That detailed in no. uh, in worrying about that, but no, but that's I I mean Roy Walker and Leslie Tompkins, the production designer and art director, I think did a, a, an amazing job uh, with creating this world and creating this space. I mean, I am fooled every time I watch this, and I feel like I'm in an actual hotel. Um, yes, I mean I think you're kind of alluding to kind of the 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 uh, conspiracy theorists who led to the making of Room Two Thirty Seven. Exactly. The uh, the documentary, you know, I tried, um, Ange and I tried watching that just the other night um, to get a sense of these stories, and I just couldn't get into it. I thought the whole thing was just bunk. <laughs> it's just like this is this is just so so inane. But you know, I don't know. But people have all these theories, and I appreciate it. It's you know, I I'm always excited about a film that makes people end up coming up with really interesting theories about things, whether it's Kubrick um, using this as a way to to tell people, hey, the moon landing is fake. I actually filmed it. Let me put this little shot of Danny, you know, with his rocket shirt standing up like he's taking off uh, in the film. You know, I think it's interesting that people end up reading all these sorts of things into it or like the about the whole idea of uh, apologizing uh, about the Native Americans or the uh, gosh, I can't even remember what else the other things are. But I mean, there's just like all these different things that people see in the film and it's it is very interesting that people go to these lengths you know there's holocaust theories and i don't know it's uh it's fascinating but i don't know i couldn't get into the documentary did you see room 237 i uh i turned it on when there was a bunch <laughs> of like there, there was a bunch of hubbub about it last uh, late last year and i i turned it on and i tried and it was all because somebody said you got to watch this because you know when the first time when he walks into the thing there's a steady cam shot and it follows jack and he takes him into the office and the, he walks into the the hotel manager's office and there's a window right behind his desk and that window couldn't structurally exist and i don't know why that comment 
would hook me because in hindsight, that's a really dumb comment. Like that's a really, really dumb thing to notice. Um, but I, I put it on and I, I think I got through maybe about five minutes, I really five minutes. And I, I turned it off. It was not, worth, was, it, it was no longer worth the oxygen I was breathing while I was watching it. Yeah. That's about how I felt. I just, you know, like the whole thing with the Calumet, uh, baking powder, and as representing the peace pipes, and I was just like, okay, yeah. uh, this is not, I'm not going to be the audience for this no, film. this is you're, you're wrong, wrong target. Yeah. Wrong yep. target. So I don't, I don't, I make, I make probably too much uh, fun of it, uh, given that I've never actually seen the whole thing. So I take, I take, uh, maybe I would take some of that back. I'm going to leave it out there maybe. for now. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, yep. what's next on your list? Um, we didn't mention it, him, but uh, Garrett Brown is the guy who is the inventor of the Steadicam. Yeah. And he, he is the guy that uh, um, we should give all the credit to for the amazing Steadicam work, even though he didn't do all of it. Um, because, as I said in the beginning, um, the film went over schedule so long that he actually had to leave to go do Rocky II and then come back when Rocky II finished so that he could continue working on it. Uh, that's how long the filming went. Um, and so he had some people that he trained to kind of helping out sometimes right. uh, on some of the shots but uh, I think he gets most of the credit for this Garrett Brown with his amazing steady cam work amazing mm-hmm. uh, and um, anybody else on the crew that you, uh, you feel like you know, Peter Spencer was the property man Del Smith head painter I mean fantastic painting Tom Thomas Harry is the master plasterer mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know that's amazing work that went into the art on this film. It's it really, is. I think it's un, uh, it, it's uh, really underappreciated. Well, it was, I think, and it, I, I don't know if it still holds the record, but it, it was the biggest set that had ever been built At on Elf the Street. soundstage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then I believe Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, and maybe Reds, uh, I can't remember which came first, but they were kind of on hold waiting to get in waiting for kubrick to finish this thing yeah. um they came on the uh the hotel lobby ended up being i think uh the well of souls in raiders of the lost ark really mm-hmm. i did not know that that's right the hotel lobby was the well of souls with, the, with the giant pillars the uh, yeah and all kind of the big you know all the snakes why did they have to be snakes why did they have to be snakes now that's a mashup I'd like to see. <laughs> the Shining Raiders. Uh, wow, that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to watch those scenes again. Um, are you, uh, you? You have some more stuff. You want to talk numbers? Um, just the. the uh, um, no, I think that is it. Actually, now that I look through this. <laughs> I was going to mention that um, the the opening Steadicam or the opening aerial shots was filmed by McGillivray Freeman Films, um, and people who are fans of a lot of the IMAX nature documentaries would see McGillivray uh, Freeman popping up on a lot of those. They were doing a lot of those gorgeous IMAX uh, filming um, to make the landscapes look so beautiful. Um, but even Kubrick had specific notes for them. And he actually had them, gosh, what was it like recalibrate 
I don't know if it's recalibrate is the right word, but um, something with the actual blades of the helicopter, he actually like had them all readjusted or retuned or whatever it is in order to help the helicopter actually fly smoother. So it just going, you know, pointing it out how, how Kubrick gets into every detail, whether it's the helicopter blades or it's the, um, you know, every time he would go to have his, um, to screen the dailies um, on the projector, he would have the projector rebuilt every week or something like that in order to make sure that there was no jitter when it was projecting. Wow. And so he's just a meticulous, meticulous person who wanted everything to be absolutely perfect. And it's, I, I find it interesting. And um, I don't know. I, I think it works really well in context of this horror film that he is telling here. I, you know, I think you're right. I'm going to change the subject. Okay. So you win that one. Um, <laughs> uh, can we, can we go back just a little bit and talk, just a little bit more about Jack Torrance, about Jack Nicholson as Jack yeah, Torrance. Yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, I'm going to ask a dumb question. Okay. This may be cut if you give me an answer that that makes it sound like it should be super obvious. <laughs> what, why, why is he in the picture at the end? Well, and see, this is something that I would say is an interesting reason that I think makes this movie last and makes it something that people are still going back to time and time again. And it's a movie that people, that we still talk about. We're talking about it right now. Um, Kubrick doesn't give you any answers. I know, and it makes me really mad. And that's, I think, the whole point. Now, there is this whole uh, theory because there is a point in the film where you do are you are introduced to um the story of Grady as he uh you know the whole idea of this this former caretaker of the of the hotel who had killed his family and he had uh ki- he killed his wife and his two girls and those are the girls that we see now when the the hotel uh uh What's his, whatever his role is, the, the manager of the hotel, Caretaker, or the, uh, the, Ullman. the Ullman, when he's talking to Jack about this, he tells him that the guy's name is Charles Grady and how he had succumbed to cabin fever and killed his family. Now, when Jack meets uh, Grady in the bathroom, Grady introduces himself as Delbert Grady. And so it ends up being this this little difference in the in the story here where uh, because of that, that's the, brought up this whole theory about how there's these kind of these mirrors of characters and how yeah. the, the Charles Grady and the Delbert Grady may be different people. And Charles Grady may be a person who actually went crazy and killed his family, but he's not necessarily Delbert Grady, who is kind of a spirit in this hotel that has always been there, just like the Jack Torrance spirit or whatever it is that's in that picture. It's just kind of representing that this character has kind of been coming back to this hotel time and time again, and it's 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 kind of these pairings of them. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I come back to that 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 there could be some. At one point, I was thinking this is just this weird sort of spectral time loop. You know, that Jack will always come back. Uh, you know, Jack as someone will always end up at the Overlook Hotel, and he he is an institution, a horrific. Uh, institution in the you know history repeating itself category uh, of this hotel, and I always sort of liked that. Yeah, 
God forbid he goes and gets his memory erased. Right. It's it's, it's, (laughs) end up right back here again. Exactly. So, uh, so that's always interesting. He's this character is, um, you know, it's obviously on the top 100 of uh, AFI's uh, heroes and villains list. He's the number 25 villain, Jack Torrance. Uh, He's pretty scary dude. And we haven't once said the most famous line. Here's Johnny. There he is. You know, is there any point in the film that you are like, okay, Jack, you just, you did actually go over the line in that, in that moment. You mean as an overactor? Yes. Is that the one for you? No. Oh, um, I think the, it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there, well, there's funny. really, there's really one for me that always stands out as the moment that's like, he just feels so acting right here is it is it near the uh near or around the lobby typewriter no no see that would be where it is for me it's sort of his the first time he reacts to her interrupting him which bugs me which is ironic because the one of the i think when he's at his most effective as an actor uh it it comes later when she wakes him up from his nightmare and he they're on the floor and he says you know i just dreamt i i killed you that's one of the most powerful scenes for me in this sequence and it's one of the most powerful scenes i think for her too um you you know it it seems like one of the most human uh, yeah for me what's yours it's the moment when he's sitting down with Lloyd, uh, the bartender, when he kind of first meets him. And it's his, his when he's talking about how he's so irritated with Wendy, and he's just like, okay, I might have act- I might have grabbed him a little hard, and I can't remember exactly yeah. what his lines are. But it's how he acts in that moment with, uh, with Lloyd about how he hurt Danny. Um, it always strikes me as, you know, he just seems over the top and not quite, I don't know if he's kind of taken it a little too far in that particular moment uh, too far in a way that that feels like he actually stepped out of character you know what's very strange about that i think you're i i think you're right i i have a similar reaction but i i didn't write i, I didn't uh chalk that up to jack i chalk it up to uh, uh some when some of the kubrickian sort of editing choices right Mm-hmm. Um, this it, come into play. There are no leading lines, right, in in any of these these two shot sequences, right. We don't get any reaction shots while while Jack is talking. There is at no point do we hear Jack talking while we're looking at Lloyd, and right. vice versa. Whenever Lloyd is talking, so that means it's more of a ping pong match, and that feels in this film unnatural because we're not uh, you know at least for me i'm not used to it anymore the the styles have changed and we get a lot of uh, of sort of leading audio tracks that that will lead us into the next cut right yeah right that does not happen in this film and it feels it makes some of these sequences feel particularly uh sterile to me right Uh, and I, i think in this case maybe Jack would have felt better if we didn't have to look at him while he was doing all of his lines. Maybe. You know? Yeah, maybe. Like if there were a little bit more organic uh, um, cutting um, in this sequence, I, I don't know. I wonder if that would have had any effect. Because I agree well, with you. You're right. It, it feels very staged. Well, and what's interesting about that is you hear about how many takes Kubrick did on these shots over and over and over again. Yeah. You know that. He's got a wide variety of options with Nicholson as far as, uh, okay, here's a very understated performance. Here's a very overstated performance. He's got 
you know, just a lot of options. And that is the one that he picks. Yeah. Uh, between him and his editor, that that's that's what they go with. And so it, I it I find it very interesting. Um, and I, I guess I can't fault Nicholson for that, really. It's it's really the fact that that is the take that Kubrick chose to go with. That's right. And and you know what you do get? I mean, when you think about the benefits of the sequences that he that he chose, each of those cuts that he took, right, you get some of the most expressive physicality of Nicholson. You yeah. get to see his face looking more uh, sort of rubbery than ever. Like, he does some things with his skin. Uh, in in those sequences that is that's really animated right i mean it's just you, you it's unique it's interesting to watch even though um you know you sort of have to distance yourself from the performance i i can totally see why they would have picked those because i think that that um it, you know that overstated sort of physicality in those sequences as he's just the way he's moving his face the largesse he has with his with each right. of his, his motions it really adds to it and then you balance that with one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Danny wants to go back into the room to get his fire truck and he walks in and he, you know, he's going to promise his mom, he's going to be quiet and tiptoe and not wake dad up because dad is sleeping, but he goes in and you get that fantastic shot of him as he looks in the room and then that whip pan over to Jack sitting up on the bed. And, but then you have this amazing conversation between the two of them that I find uh, just really powerful and very understated uh, Nicholson at yes. that point. It's a very beautiful scene that actually gets kind of creepy as Danny starts asking him hard questions like, you would never hurt me and mom, oh, would you? And, yes, crush you know, it's like that That scene to me is the film, is, is the moment that really kind of makes the makes this relationship with his family work uh, yeah. for me. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. All right. Now we can do something else. You want to do numbers? Yes. Let's, Let's do, do numbers. numbers. So this movie, as you said, came out uh, May 23rd, 1980. It was a slow build. This was actually a film that had a hard time finding its audience. It didn't click with people right away. And uh, it, it took a while, although it did slowly uh, find its audience. And it, uh, it you know, it, it wasn't very well reviewed. It wasn't really well reviewed until much later, like like decades later, all of a sudden people kind of realized, hey, this is actually a good movie. Um, but it, it, and so because of that, in 1980, it was really a slow burn over the course of the summer. And, uh, you know, it ended up, it, well, let's see, it cost $19 million to make. And adjusted, that would have been about, uh, about not quite $54 million to make. And then uh, domestically, I could only find domestic numbers, but it made about uh, $44 million, which uh, today's dollars would be about $125.5 million. So it, you know, it did well. It made its money back. And, um, you know, adjusted uh, profit per finished minute is just under $500,000 uh, per finished minute. So in the long and uh, the short of it, I mean, it ended up making a profit. So. All right. Which Kubrick well, needed because coming off of uh, Barry Lyndon, it was uh, that was a, a big failure at the box office, and so he really needed to find something that uh, could kind of be a hit, and so that's why he went to horror, and that's why he ended up picking this book, The Shining, to go with and and make something that uh, you know is kind of an, an indelible horror classic, even if the author doesn't actually like it. Yeah, that's too bad. But you know, it it definitely gave him, uh, it gave him a little shove into uh, you know he spent the next, next part of his life pulling out a Full Metal Jacket. 
Um, that was an awesome film coming out of mm-hmm. Shining. Yeah. Although it took a while to get to it, but yeah, it took a while, but not uh, exactly a fast filmmaker. No, no, no. All right. Hey, awesome. Uh, I think it's time that we uh, rank it. Let's do it. Head on over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can uh, pair up with us over there and see if your favorite films line up with our favorite films. That's what you should do, and uh, we'll be looking for you. So go ahead. All right. The Shining or The Born Supremacy? Mm. That's, I, I, I Probably The Shining. Yeah, I think I would do The Shining. Uh, the Shining or For a Few Dollars More? Um, Your favorite of the trilogy. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, for a few dollars more. I would probably go with The Shining, and maybe it's just because I've seen it so many more times. You know, it's just one of those films that has a very lasting impression on me. Hmm. Like how much? A scale of one to ten. Where are you? Well, it, it the imagery for it, I think, is what is what makes the film for me. I, I don't know. I would say The Shining. How set are you on for a few dollars more? Yeah, pretty set. But I, you know, I, it feels like you are you are perhaps more set than I am. Like you might watch this movie in a shower, for example. Like really <laughs> watching The Shining in some really inappropriate places, under a bed, <laughs> in, in the trunk of a moving car. I think you would you would choose to watch The Shining versus something else. That's usually where I watch it. I'll actually. give this. Okay, I'll give it to you for the shower okay. and the moving car. All right, plus the awesome, I mean, there's a wide variety of posters for the movie, but Saul Bass, I think, has the yeah. the, the best one, which is that creepy face in the lettering. Yeah, that was the best. And I, the, why they ended up using the still for the from the face in the door, the Here's Johnny sequence, I think. Well, that's a ridiculous yeah. poster. But the, yeah, yeah, I agree. Right. Uh, the Shining or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Um. It's interesting that we went to those two films. I know. I know. I, you know, I would choose The Shining over this one. I think I would too. The Shining or Brazil? <laughs> <laughs> I think we. I think we would both probably go Brazil. All right. It's a good go. way to do it. We're going to guess for each other. I'm going to guess for you on this next okay, one. Okay. The ahead. Shining or Aliens? I. I you're think gonna you're going to go Aliens. aliens. Well, there you go. We both said aliens. <laughs> that was easy. All right. Sh- that was too easy. <laughs> the Shining or the Fisher King? Uh, I think you're going to say the Fisher King. I think you are too. All right. There you go. I accept. <laughs> the Shining or the French Connection? Oh. I think we're both going to say the French Connection. I think we are. Yeah. And uh, wow. the Shining or Fight Club? Fight Club. Yeah. Oh, may- I may have just chosen for myself. <laughs> that's that's okay. I think I would do Fight Club too. Okay. Number 19. There you go. Number All 19 right. out of 149. We're close to that 150 uh, movies on our list. So close. What's our? Do you know what our 150th movie is going to be? I do. Do you want to know? I want to know because I don't have it open. What's it well, be? we're going to be continuing our Stephen King uh, series with yeah. Creep Show. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited about this. I am, too. I, I saw this a lot when I was young, and I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm looking forward to jumping back into it. Oh, yeah, that's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not going to be our 150th. Well, if this one was our 149th. Oh, I thought you said 144th. No, 149th. Oh, I, w- I thought I was asking you to go into December or something. No, this was 19 out of 149. Wow, that's great. Creep Show is our 150th? Mm-hmm. It's like a gala <laughs> event. <laughs> I want a parade. 
That's right. It's like a parade of short films. <laughs> We're going to need a longer show. <laughs> all right. That's all I got. I uh, I think I'm going to head up to uh, old 237. Hit the sack. Yeah. There you go. Sack I, I... of skin. I don't even have anything. <laughs> Go get a drink out of your nipple fridge. <laughs>
The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.